When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is John Ridley. I'm the founder of No Studios. And I'm Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline.com. And this is Doc Talk, a podcast where each week Matt and I dig into the critical content being created by some of today's most outstanding documentary filmmakers, storytellers, industry leaders, and artists who are changing cinema and the world one doc at a time. John, I know one of your favorite documentaries of the year is Beyond Utopia, which premiered at Sundance, won the Audience Award there. It's also one of my favorites, a really extraordinary film directed by Madeline Gavin. It's a phenomenal film. I'd love to do tons of setup and just praise it, but we have a really extensive conversation, so we're really just going to get into it this week with Madeline Gavin and the film again, Beyond Utopia, about individuals trying to defect from North Korea to some version of freedom. We're joined today with director Madeline Gavin, director of the film Beyond Utopia. And Madeline, I approached Matt and Deadline maybe a couple of months ago, really excited about doing this program, Doc Talk, talking about documentaries. And in that process, and I mean this very sincerely, there was a doc in particular that I really wanted to be among the first that we talked about, and that was your film Beyond Utopia. I was finishing a film, and we talked a little bit about this, but there's an editorial assistant that's working with us, a young lady, Tori, who's terrific. I work with, and apparently she knew you, and I was like, you gotta speak to the director. I have to get a link. I have to see this film. And I saw it, and I watched it, and I want to be measured in how I say this, because the, the subject matter of your film is just so harrowing. But your film did not disappoint in not just excavating the nation of of North Korea, which is obviously in the headlines a lot, but really the people of North Korea and not just the government, not just ideology, not just capitalist West against a, a very entrenched communist society, but the people of North Korea. And I would love for you to start there and really talk about coming into a film and saying, hey, I, I want to make this film about the people and saying it can't just be one more film about the politics. If we don't understand the people and their challenges, we won't understand how important it is to do something to either help these individuals or resolve our political differences, which is, I don't know how that happens, but, but the helping the people, your film does an incredible job of articulating what that's all about. When I started doing research for this film, I read everything I could get my hands on. I watched everything I could get my hands on. I went deep, deep, deep into the web using VPNs and really searching in every language and from every country because I was discovering that I could find different little tidbits out of North Korea, depending on what language I searched under, what country I searched from. And I found all these tidbits of propaganda and all sorts of crazy stuff out of North Korea. But what I also found was this hidden camera footage that very brave North Koreans have been shooting since the famine in the 90s, hiding cameras in their pockets, in their sleeves, and risking their lives because they want the truth of their country to come out to the rest of the world. And all this time, 
none of us are hearing it. None of us are seeing it. These people are risking their lives, but none of us know it. Uh, on the news, basically what we hear about North Korea is what the regime would like us to hear. I mean, we hear about the missiles and we see bits and pieces of these very elaborate parades. But as I started to find this footage and as I did more and more research, I started to feel the pulse and the heartbeat of the people. And I was so outraged that we literally let these people exist inside of a hermetically sealed capsule. And we don't reach out to them. We don't even take responsibility for them existing because we're so unaware of them. And so that was my entire reason for wanting to make this movie. And the focus of the film is definitely the people and cracking open North Korea in terms of what it's like for them, for the people. Yeah, I I really appreciated that. I am a child of the 80s, and at that time, Japan was in high ascension. And it may seem a little bit odd considering what I do for a living, but I really considered foreign service. And I had majored in East Asian languages and culture and was familiar. I won't say North Korea was an intense sphere of study for me, but understanding that bifurcated nation and how and why it arose. And part of the reason I wanted to study is because there was such fear of Asia, fear of Japan. We were still working our way through Vietnam and what that meant. And it was more about ideology than about people. And so that, again, is what I really appreciated was this was such a human story. Now, this is largely the story of those who defect through some perspectives. Some are individuals who've already defected successfully, but your film also tracks individuals who are literally, literally, not figuratively, literally in the middle, at the head of your film, there is a note, not quite a disclaimer, but it says in none of the scenes that you're about to see were reenacted. There's a lot to talk about here, but that to me was amazing to, to realize this is not recreating this just so you can wrap your mind around it. This footage was obtained at the risk of human life. And some of what we see is harrowing in terms of what North Korea does to individuals who try to tell the truth or at least get some facts out there and what people have to go through to truly get out of that country. I know there's a lot there, but it's just stunning when it plays out in real time in your film. In terms of the no recreations, I really felt like we have to do something that brings us up close and personal to North Korean people, that gives us an experiential feeling of what life is like for them, that puts us in their shoes. And so for me, absolutely, there could not be recreations, right? There are films that have done recreations really, really well. But for something like this, especially since we've ignored these people for 70 plus years, I felt it was vital not to do that. When I met Pastor Kim, and that's a whole another part of the story, but when I met Pastor Kim and came to know him over several months where he started to trust me and, and you know, vice versa. And, and we decided that we were going to do this together. He actually had the exact same feeling. He had been approached by several filmmakers in the past and different news venues and stuff like that. But he had never felt like they were aligned with him in terms of what they wanted to do exactly. And he and I came to understand that we were aligned. We were able to get footage from the border of North Korea and China, which is a place that nobody goes and nobody wants to go and nobody should ever go because of Pastor Kim, because of his network, you know, because of the fact that his network, vast network, keeps, you know, cameras hidden along the border, which is an over 800-mile river border between North Korea and China. And some of these very brave North Koreans smuggle those cameras into North Korea and shoot this hidden camera footage about real life and then bring those cards back out but also people in the Underground Railroad, which, you know, is Pastor Kim's network. Some of the people in the, in the Underground Railroad are brokers who are only doing this for money. And some people are more 
part of the sort of the missionary, the spiritual sort of pursuit of freedom and are more aligned with missionary work. But the only people who could shoot the family on the border of North Korea and China was the network. And it's because of Pastor Kim. And, you know, one of the reasons why I um, put that thing at the top of the film where it says film contains no recreations, because when we first got footage out of the border of North Korea and China, which was shot by the farmer who actually had found the family to begin with, who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone in the network, and then it went to Pastor Kim, I showed it to a, a friend of mine and she said, my God, those recreations are amazing. And I realized everyone's going to think these are recreations. That is just our language. We can't, because this was so mind-boggling, right, that you would never imagine it's real. So that's why I felt like, okay, thank you, Mary, my friend Mary. Thank you, Mary. Um, Now I know I have to make this perfectly clear, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We have a clip from the film. This is a moment in Beyond Utopia when Hyunseo Lee, who managed to defect from North Korea 25 years ago, talks about how she made it out of her country. The Yalu River is the border between China and North Korea. And my hometown, a place I grew up living was Utopia, is on the border right across from China. The night I left my home country, more than 20 years ago, military border guards were patrolling, and one of them was my friend. He's super handsome, and I think he liked me. Uh, But at the time, I was young to notice that. I asked my friend to help me cross the border. The river was covered with snow, white snow everywhere. It was so dark, but I saw the moon and the stars. I never knew who's God, what's God. But when I was crossing the border, I was staring at the sky, and my legs were trembling. Somehow I prayed. I don't know to who, so I said, please, just hear me. And I just kept walking. Heon Seo Lee, the author of, of The Girl with Seven Names, who was someone who was a defector. And she talked about what would happen when she was in school, when they caught someone who was, you know, quote unquote, thinking incorrectly. And you have footage of that. So if you can just talk a little bit about that, that this is not what we consider oppression. And listen, oppression in any form is wrong. But what we consider here in America and what would happen to little children in North Korea to be shown what happens to those who are not sufficiently loyal. The way that North Korea has maintained its brutal dictatorship as long as it has is by keeping the people cut off completely from the outside world. So there's no internet inside North Korea. The spy system inside North Korea is vast. Husbands and wives can't always trust each other. You know, there's definitely spies in every neighborhood block. And those are moved around from time to time. There's so many levels to the hierarchy. And so this is an unprecedentedly brutal dictatorship. And again, in the modern world, there is there is no way that this could be maintained without this level of indoctrination, being cut off, and fear. Fear that is that is ingrained into people from a very, very young age. Children are forced to witness public executions. Each dictator of the three that have been Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and now Kim Jong-un have had different priorities. But Kim Jong-un's main priority in, in terms of what he punishes the most for are threefold. Trying to leave the country, 
because that can get the stories of the country out. Bringing media into the country or bringing media out of the country, because again, that can educate the North Korean people or get the truth of North Korea out. And all those things put at risk this hermetically sealed kingdom. And the Bible, religion of any sort, because the Kim regime has co-opted so many aspects of the Bible and they are gods within the society. So watching foreign content, distributing foreign content, attempting to defect or knowing anything about the Bible or verses, those are death sentences. Below that, there are any number of other things that also can be death sentences. And a death sentence doesn't even necessarily have to be an execution, because if you're sent to one of the most brutal prison camps, it's a death sentence without an execution, right? And that can go to not having dust on portraits on your wall. Kionsio writes about in her book, there was a fire in her house when she was little, and rather than save anyone, even themselves, her father had to save the portraits. Portraits of, explain, we're we're talking about portraits of the dear leader. Yeah, so in North Korea, every family, every household, every building, but every household has to have portraits of the dear leaders on their wall in the most prominent position possible. And those portraits have to be kept clean in the summer when it's brutally hot in North Korea. Nobody has air conditioning, right? You have fans, and those fans have to be pointed toward the portrait as opposed to people because the heat can also kind of destroy the texture of the photograph, the material. And randomly, guards will come into homes all over North Korea unannounced, and they will inspect those portraits. And if you have not been treating them well, you will be punished. And if there's a fire, that is the biggest priority over your own children, over anything else, because those represent the dear leaders. So any offense to the dear leaders is the ultimate crime. And the Bible outside information, all of those things threaten the deity status of the leaders. And Madeline, you've been talking about this family that escaped. So this is the present tense element of your movie that is so gripping. This is the Roe family, three generations, grandma, the parents, and their two young children who managed to get across the Yalu River into China. But that is by no means the end of the story. It's In some ways, it's the beginning. And this is where Pastor Kim, you've been referring to, who's a South Korean pastor, has created this network that has been quite effective of getting people, ultimately, as John says, to South Korea. It's an incredible ordeal. But explain why the Roe family wound up in China, why they were escaping, and how difficult it is, ultimately, to get to South Korea. Kim Jong-un, when he came into power, he really amped up security along the border of North Korea and China in a big, big way. And one thing that he also did was he started a policy of punishment by banishment of families who had family members who had defected in the last three years. And the Roe family had had two family members, three really, one was a child though, uh, but two adult family members who had defected. And they found out that they were on this list to be banished. And being banished means being sent into the mountains of North Korea without anything. You survive or you don't, and basically you don't. And this can happen at any time. If you're on the list, you know, you don't know if it's going to happen today, tomorrow, next week, next month. And so when the Roe family got this information, they fled blindly. They had never been out of North Korea. They 
didn't know anything about the outside world. They only know the river was the way to China and they fled and they ended up in the mountains of China roaming around for five days, not knowing where to go next and not having any idea of what the path forward would be. And they happened to come upon a farmer. There are a lot of ginseng farms in the mountains of Chiang Mai Mountain. And um, they happened to come along a farmer who happened to know someone who happened to know someone who was part of this network of Pastor Kim's, which is very vast throughout the mountains of China and all throughout Asia. And it was because of that that they were able to get a message to Pastor Kim. And he eventually went to his church to get the funding to do the escape, and they approved it. Without that, who knows what would have happened, right? And and we don't know how many people did not come upon a farmer like that or came upon a broker who might have sold them into marriage or something else. So yeah, China has a policy of repatriating any North Koreans who they find. So getting to China, even if you, as a North Korean, you may not even know this, but getting to China is only the very beginning. Crossing the river into China in some ways is arguably, yes, it's extremely dangerous and there is a shoot to kill order on on the river now, as per Kim Jong-un, but arguably that is the easier part. Because once you're in China, you have thousands of miles to go and you don't know how to get there. And if you're caught, you're arrested and then you're repatriated. Mostly it's women who escape. Can you explain why that is, who, who attempt to defect, in other words? In North Korea, women are largely responsible for actually feeding the family. Men usually have some sort of dictated government job, but those jobs don't pay anything. And since the 90s, when the famine occurred, the big famine there have been markets that have opened up throughout North Korea, and, and those markets are fueled by goods that are smuggled over the border from China. And in the 90s, the Kim regime did turn kind of a blind eye to those markets because, you know, millions died during the famine, but it would have been millions more if they hadn't allowed those markets. So women are the ones who are, for the most part, going over the border into China and attempting to find a way to make a living for their family. And Soyan, who's in the film, someone we follow, who's trying to rescue her son, she initially, when she went into China, she was not planning to defect. She was planning to go over and try to smuggle goods back to feed her son, and she was caught and she was put in prison. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Talk a little bit about her story, Soyeon, because there are essentially two families that you're, you're tracking, as Matt said, the Roe family. But Soyeon, her son, who is relatively young, initially we're, we're I don't want to say led to believe, but it, he misses his mother so much he wants to try to come to her. Later in the film, we find out maybe he was trying to bring her back, but but his story and her heartbreak is just so powerful in this film. After Pastor Kim and I got to know each other and decided to do this together, I knew, and he he felt the same, that we had to follow two stories. We didn't know what was going to happen with either one, not knowing what the film would eventually be, but I, I knew, okay, let's follow two. And these were the two people who approached, the two groups who approached to Pastor Kim right after that. So Soyeon was one, the Roe family was the other. 
Soyan had initially gone into China years ago to try to find a way to make a living for her son, to feed her son, was caught, put in prison in North Korea, repatriated, put in prison in North Korea for two years. She was let out at that time, but she was shunned. She was shunned as someone who had attempted to leave the country or at least to smuggle goods in. And she was barred from seeing her son. She was barred from seeing her family. She was not able to work or make a living of any sort. And she left again with the intention of bringing her son over as soon as she could. For 10 years, she tried to bring her son over and she couldn't even communicate with him because her ex-husband in North Korea would not allow it. And so, yeah, she came to Pastor Kim hoping now to bring him over because her son was at an age where he could do this without his father's approval. And we follow that story and it's tragic. And becoming so close to Soyan and following her story so closely has been one of the most difficult experiences of my life. And I mean, obviously it pales in comparison to what she goes through. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking what she goes through. And your film, as John has been saying, is so revelatory about what it's actually like for people living in North Korea. Partly you explore that through these uh, surreptitiously captured videos and partly through Hyun C. Lee and the author that uh, John referred to. Explain what the average North Korean is taught about their country growing up. And I want to follow that up with what are they taught about Americans? But initially, can you explain what kids in North Korea are told about the land they're living in, which refers to, and that's where the title comes in, partly of your film. Right, exactly. They're told that this is utopia. You know, this is paradise. And obviously, life in North Korea, for almost everyone, is a life of endurance and, and work and very little pleasure. But they are told that relative to the rest of the world, this is paradise. This is utopia. And because they are so cut off from the rest of the world, this is what they believe. Um, not to say that they're happy. I mean, as Hyuncio says in the film, the time that she felt happy as a child was the comparison because she was told that everything else was so much worse. So she must be happy. It wasn't that she felt happy, but she felt lucky in terms of what they're told about Americans. They're told that Americans only exist to make North Koreans miserable to seek to destroy, to seek to kill Americans, that that is literally our only goal in life. I mean, North Koreans, the, the mythology of North Korea, the ideology is that North Korea is sort of the center of the world. You grow up believing that your leader, your dear leader, is the most important leader in the world. There are all these propaganda videos that I found, and I had a whole section of this in the film. I had to eventually cut it out, I felt, because it's just there's only so much it could hold. But there's all these propaganda videos of you know, people who came to meet Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, including, you know, President Carter, like leaders from all over the world, and they come bearing gifts. And these videos are shown to North Koreans. So North Koreans believe that their leaders are the gods of the world, that everyone is coming to them. They are the most powerful, the most important. They are the center of the universe. That is how distorted reality is. And again, the only way this can be maintained is by completely cutting the people off from any re outside reality. And part of that is that, yes, North Koreans are the center of the world. Americans are this kind of periphery, like annoyance, mosquitoes, someone who just wants to kill them. Who's, we don't even have an identity outside of wanting to kill them. And the only word they have for Americans is one word, American bastard. So... 
there is not the word American. It is American bastard. That's one word. Which teachers work into math problems. Yes. At the school, you know, I mean, it's almost a joke kids would tell at school. You know, you have X American bastards and you kill Y American bastards. How many American bastards are left? Madeline, you talk about the things that you couldn't get into the film. You were just mentioning you have this footage that was about a lot of the propaganda and it didn't get in. One thing in particular, and I'd love for you to talk as a director, you did a really amazing job of combining different kinds of documentary filmmaking into a, a, a holistic narrative. And what, what, I, what I mean is there are moments where you have more traditional individuals just talking. You have very active footage where you're literally uh, moving with the Roe family. We talked about that in real time. You have archival footage that you're using. You have graphics and animation that you're using. And I was watching another documentary, and I'm not, I'm not going to mention the name. I, I quite liked it. But in some of those shifts from the immediate and the emotional to the historical, I, I felt like it kind of lost its way a little bit between being uh, something more sober-minded and something being more emotionally immersive. And I thought you did a really masterful job of taking these very disparate elements of filmmaking or storytelling and bringing them together. Wow, that's that's amazing for you to say that. It was really, yeah, it was a, it was very challenging. And especially I was the director and editor, so and the archival researcher. So I was, I was really, I was so immersed in this so deeply, but I also knew I had to try to, you know, check myself because again, directors and editors are such an incredible relationship in film, right? You push each other, you know, one person feels it's great. The other person says, no, no, back and forth. And so doing all of that myself was really, really difficult. And in terms of what you're talking about, I felt like there were a number of reasons that I, I, I felt I had to go to certain, I call them interstitials, right? About life inside North Korea. One is just, again, the simple fact that we don't know anything about it. So uh, if, if I don't reveal anything about life inside North Korea and we see people trudging through a mountain, what do we really know? So it was definitely a way to contextualize their life, develop character for them before we could actually sit down and be with them in Vietnam, which was not even for long. We were able to talk to them some in Vietnam, but more in Laos, but even in Laos, there was always risk. But in the journey of the film, you can't cut to an interview with the family in the middle of, of an escape journey because it steps on the whole premise, not just the premise, the reality of what we are doing. This was an escape. We don't have time. So how do I reveal these people when we can't really stop to talk to them? And so these little tidbits about life in North Korea were, for me, a way to show something very specific that when we come back to the family, we now know something about them because we know where they came from. We know what they've gone through. So that was one. And then, you know, as I went along again, like realizing at a certain point, wait, nobody even knows how North Korea started. We need to know this. Otherwise, again, the film is not grounded. That whole recording was me sitting in front of my avid at home on my iPhone, just sort of like, you know, and then, you know, and I just talked and talked and talked, and then I cut into like what I thought were the important pieces. But there was a certain amount of history and context that was necessary to ground the film and to understand the people. And I never wanted it to be too much. And so I'm so pleased with what you said, because I questioned myself endlessly. The whole evolution of the structure came through this very organic process of me just trying to piece out what we needed to appreciate this, to learn that about this person, 
And then, you know, the balance of the stories between Soyan and the family, you know, the whole style of that is very different too, because when I was shooting with Soyan, it was much quieter, much more still, almost everything besides me being there with her interviewing was, you know, her on the phone because that's the only access she had to North Korea. Whereas the family was this verite, you know, very run and gun kind of thing. So it was a combination of very different styles that I tried to put together in a holistic way. In terms of the the human elements, and I, I don't want to, to give it much away about the end of the film because I think it is truly worth the trip. But talking about Pastor Kim, to me, what was really remarkable and heartbreaking about his story at the end of this, you did this film, uh, or, or, the, or the bulk of the filming was in and around, or just prior to the, the pandemic. And towards the, the very end of this film, if, if this were a, a narrative, it would be like a Batman film, that the bat phone continues to ring, and the phone goes off. And there are moments where the pastor is saying at this point that because of the impending lockdowns that are starting, that his network is sh- shut down. Your film, at least up to this point, pretty much documents the last few individuals who really had any kind of an opportunity at all to try to get across the border or the borders. Because again, it's North Korea to China to, I believe, Vietnam, and then they need to go to either Laos or Cambodia. Um, But as they travel through communist countries, the default is to send back. So they've got to get all the way down to Thailand. And I will say, I just got back from the jungles of Vietnam. That is no joke to get through there. It is no joke. And to see an 80-year-old woman and five, six-year-old children in your film going through this, I have to tell people, this is no joke. And nobody's shooting at me. And it's daylight. What is the state now, uh, post-lockdown, with Pastor Kim and his network? What hope is there for, for anyone at all? at this point to get through? And, and what can we do? What can be done? What is being done? And where are you emotionally with this with this story and, and these folks right now? Actually, when the border shut down between North Korea and China, we were actually in South Korea. So I was with Soyan, I was with Pastor Kim. I was actually shooting one of the cameras when Pastor Kim was getting those phone calls. The network, the, the Underground Railroad was decimated, right? Completely. Some of the people on the Underground Railroad are part of the missionary, sort of part of the spiritual missionary culture. And some of them are brokers doing this for money, but it was decimated because China was frozen. Nobody could move through China. I mean, even if you weren't a defector, you couldn't move through China, but let alone a defector. It fell apart completely. Pastor Kim has been rebuilding it. The amazing thing is he actually helped four people escape this summer. And actually I was on with him two days ago and he's in Southeast Asia right now. With, it, with another group, I was doing a Zoom with him. So it is starting up again, but it's been a long path to get there. And it's, they've had to rebuild routes, bring new people in because people couldn't afford to do nothing for, for you know two years. And it's gotten much more expensive. So also for his church, because his church it funds all this through donations. So that, that's been very difficult. In terms of being in touch with them. Yeah, Pastor Kim has been in the United States actually most of the last two months. Well, right now he's in Southeast Asia, but he'll be back in the United States. Soyan has been here. The mother has been here most of the last two months. And she was back in South Korea last week for the Busan International Film Festival, but she's now back in the United States. And the Roe family was in the United States. They're in South Korea now. So 
we're all very much in touch. I feel like these relationships are going to really last a lifetime. What we all went through together was the kind of thing that bonds you, right? So they are extremely meaningful parts of my life. It's great that the underground is opening up again, although it is slow and it is rickety and it is expensive, and which is going to make it extremely difficult for obvious reasons. But also during the pandemic, when the border was shut down between North Korea and China, some 2,600 plus people were caught by the Chinese inside China and were imprisoned, but they were not able to be repatriated back to North Korea because the border was shut down. North Korea wasn't accepting anyone back because they didn't want any potential COVID spread. Soyeon's son was sent back during COVID, but he was one of a very small number of people that were sent back. And it's tragic that he was sent back. If he had remained in China, perhaps we could have done something. But there are some 2,600 plus people who were caught in China and there's been a lot of protesting that we've been involved with, Soyeon's been involved with, Pastor Kim's been involved with, to the Chinese government to plead with them not to send these people back. Unfortunately, just recently, they sent over 600 of them back. And now there's another 2,000 that they don't seem to be listening to anyone's concerns. On top of that, there are estimated to be hundreds of thousands of North Koreans hiding in China because as a North Korean, you are never safe in China. If you're a woman who goes over the border into China, and let's say you get sold into marriage to a, a man who lives in the empty countryside of China where there are no women. And so women often get sold into marriage there. Even if you're married for 20, 30 years, even if you have five children, you will never have status in China, which means that even 30 years later, if your husband or your neighbor or anyone who's mad at you wants to turn you into the Chinese government, you will be repatriated. So you have no power even in China. So it's a huge issue, not only because of the pandemic, but it's definitely an even bigger issue because there were so many people when China was frozen, so many more people, not just that were caught, but people that were already en route, let's say, who hadn't been lucky enough to find Pastor Kim and have been hiding ever since in China. And there are estimated to be hundreds of thousands of those people. The name of the film is Beyond Utopia. The director is Madeline Gavin. Madeline, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know you don't do it for the recognition, but all the best during awards season. This is a, a truly remarkable film. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Madeline. Thank you so much. It was an honor to talk to you guys. John, I thought that was such a fascinating conversation with Madeline Gavin. It's really remarkable what she has managed to achieve with that film. So many elements to it and just opens a window on North Korea that is eye-opening and stunning and shocking, horrifying, really. Yeah, I think you and I were both surprised. This, this film premiered at Sundance um, to a lot of acclaim. And you and I actually talked about doing an episode just about the, the marketplace because this was such a strong documentary. And it took a minute to pick up distribution. But as you know, now that we're approaching award seasons, I mean, people are really, really focused on this film. Yeah, it won the Audience Award at Sundance, but I wouldn't say that it was the most talked about film there necessarily. There's so many documentaries at, at Sundance that inevitably not all of them are going to get sort of the marquee attention. But Beyond Utopia has really been gaining steam lately, which is rather fascinating to, to witness. But it won two awards at the Hamptons International Film Festival. It also won two awards at, at Woodstock at the end of September, Best 
a documentary and best editing. And of course, Madeline, as she was saying, edited the film. So that was recognition for her role there. And then it also claimed four nominations for the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards, including Best Documentary. So it has really been surging, I guess we could say. It's an amazing film. I hate to put my thumb on the scale, but I hate to use the word favorite, but I will say this is, is one of the most powerful documentaries I've seen to this point. It's really remarkable. We're kind of next week going back to politics a little bit. I think that's fair to say in some of the films we're looking at next week, Matt. Oh, yeah. We're going to get into documentaries that look at the U.S. Supreme Court, which it's not a newsflash, but uh, the court is not held in terribly high public esteem at the moment, which is only surprising if you look at it historically, because it's always been a highly respected, august institution. And now it does seem to be firmly in the realm of, of the political couple of filmmakers we'll be speaking with and also examining one of perhaps the most controversial member of the court uh, right now, Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas. This is going to be a really interesting conversation, I have to say. Between these two films, one a docuseries and one, one a film, I was able to walk away with an understanding of not quite understanding Clarence Thomas and his wife with much more clarity than I, I thought that I would ever have. I know people look at that sentence and go, that doesn't quite make sense. But that's how I feel. I, I understand the things that I misunderstand about Clarence Thomas and his wife. And it's really a testament to the filmmakers that we're going to be talking to, Don Porter and Michael Kirk, about their films, to give this insight to the court in general, and very specifically, one of the most talked about and, and certainly one of the most controversial figures in the history of the court, Clarence Thomas. So I hope people will join us for that conversation. And I'm looking forward to sitting with you again. Matt, and hopefully we'll have a minute to, to catch up. I'm always interested in your travels, what you're seeing and what you're thinking about out there. Just back from the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival in Arkansas, which was a great experience. I actually served on a jury there, so that was an unusual experience, but uh, we'll, we'll get into that at some point. It sounds like just Hot Springs and a film festival. To me, that's like... I know, it's, it's a historic town, you know, known for Babe Ruth and Al Capone, and also known for hosting the longest-running all-documentary film festival in North America. So it's got a lot of history. All right. We'd love to hear about what you've seen, what you've liked, and what's coming up. As always, it's a pleasure sharing the mics with you, Matt. We'll see you, and we'll be speaking with people again next week. Great. We will see you then. Mm-hmm.